So we're going to be at James chapter 2, verse number 1. And so, way of review, we've already looked at the fact that here in the book of James, we're considering that these Christians have undergone uh, quite intense persecution. Uh, It's been about roughly 20 years since the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he's writing to the dispersed Messianic Jews uh, around the region. And we saw that they're supposed to have joy in the midst of their trials and tribulations. We saw that when there's temptations that come in the midst of their trials, uh, to not say that those temptations or those evil inclinations are coming from God because God doesn't tempt any man with evil, and nor can he. And so we looked at, at what's known as situational ethics. In the fact that, okay, is it wrong to steal a loaf of bread if your family's starving? And you always get that discussion in the military. It draws up good and interesting discussions. At the end of the day, sin is sin, you know, regardless how you want to paint it. And so we could talk about Rahab and, and lying as far as despise or concern and the fact that there's nothing negative reported uh, in Scripture. But when we're looking at James, we looked at the aspect of when they're going through trials, the temptation that they were having to go ahead and... and fix their outcome, fix their situation by sinning, by lying, by possibly receiving uh, people into their church for ulterior motives, which is what we're going to look at this evening. And so uh, with that being the case, here in James chapter 2, verse number 1, James writes, my brethren, the first thing right off the bat we got to realize again is James is writing to Christians. Fifteen times in the book of James, he uses the term brethren. Three times, he calls them beloved brethren. And then here we're going to see in a few verses later, he says that uh, the rich people blaspheme the worthy name by which you are called. And so we have got to remember that James is writing to Christians uh, in this time period. A couple things I want to point out here in this first verse. Uh, the fr- reference, Lord Jesus Christ. And so James, he, he mentions the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when we look at this, we can see three aspects of Jesus. We can see his deity being Lord, Kyrios. We can see his humanity uh, with his first name of Jesus. And then his mes- messiahship or his office and position of being Christ. Uh, here in the King James, we see and read that he is the Lord of glory. And so this isn't the aspect that uh, glory comes from God simply because he's good. It's the fact that Jesus Christ is glory. Jesus Christ is the Shekinah glory, if you will. In the Old Testament, you had the Shekinah glory. Uh, there's, I believe there was the view that the Shekinah glory possibly was uh, the Holy Spirit that led the Israelites through the wilderness. But the Shekinah glory also radiates from Jesus Christ, from the Father, from the Holy Spirit. And so whenever we see Lord Jesus Christ, there's an aspect, there's an inclination of his deity, his humanity, and his messiahship. But not only that, here in this first verse, when there's this reference of the Lord Jesus Christ being the Lord of glory, when I first read this in the King James, I was kind of confused at first, because when I'm reading this in the King James James is saying, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so right off the bat, when I was reading this, I was kind of confused. To me, it seemed like, are we not supposed to have the same type of faith that Jesus Christ showed? And what we got to realize is we got to slow down and take time to read and understand the words that are actually written, being said, and what they actually meant during that time. The word have not simply means to hold or to possess. 
And when James is writing here in verse number one, have not or hold not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ with respect to persons, he's simply saying don't hold and give and administer the faith or tell people about Christ or show an aspect of Christian service and love to people by playing favorites. Don't show partiality with whom you do and you do not become a Christian too. Don't, beca- don't play favorites as far as who you want to go ahead and reach for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Everybody deserves the good news of Jesus Christ. This is one of the big hangups. I think Pastor Ken somewhat alluded to it uh, this morning, if I'm not conflating it with something else that I heard. But there's a view out there that when Jesus Christ died, that he didn't die for the sins of the world, but that he only died for the sins of the elect. And that's not an accurate teaching because plenty of times in Scripture we hear the aspect that, behold, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world. And we read in 1 John chapter 2, I believe it's in verse number 2, where Jesus Christ is the propitiation of our sins, and not just ours, but the sins of the world. And so we get this understanding that Jesus Christ died for everybody. Jesus Christ loves everybody. And so everybody's payment is paid, but the problem is the fact that people don't receive the payment. It's not the fact that Jesus Christ hasn't made the payment. It's the fact that they're not receiving that payment, if you will. And so when we're looking at that, we got to understand that Jesus Christ loves everybody. And so we should not withhold the faith, the gospel message to those whom we play favorites with. And we're going to see who he's talking about specifically here in these next few verses. In verse 2 through 4, we read this. As far as talking about respect to persons, for if there come unto your assembly a man with a gold ring and in goodly apparel, and there come in also a poor man in vile raiment, and you have respect to him that weareth the gay clothing, and say unto him, Sit thou here in a good place, and say to the poor, Stand thou there, or sit here under, under my footstool. Are ye not then partial in yourselves and become judges of evil thoughts? So here James, right off the bat, is telling them, how not to play favorites with their faith. And a couple of things we need to look at. Here in verse number two, when it says, when there's somebody that comes into your assembly, a lot of times what we're going to think of when we think of the Greek word for assembly or church, we're going to think of the Greek word ekklesia. It means caught out, if you will. This is not the word that James uses here. The word James used here in the Greek is the Greek word for synagogue. And a synagogue is a Jewish assembly, Jewish place of worship, if you will. They did the readings of scriptures. Uh, they did some rituals, if you will. And so James uses not ecclesia, he uses synagogue, which is interesting because you're not going to find the word synagogue used after the book of Acts in any Pauline epistles, in any Peter epistles, or any Johannine epistles. You're only going to find this Greek word after Acts from James And in these two references in Revelation, when it's used as a figurative sense of the synagogue of Satan. Why does this matter? Well, I think this, just like we talked about in the beginning, the introduction of James, it points to an early date for the writing of the book of James. We looked, and my argument is the fact that this was written around the time of the Jerusalem Council, which is around AD 45-ish time frame. And so you're looking at maybe 20 years after the resurrection of Christ. And so, but it's interesting when we see the aspect that he's talking about a synagogue that these people are meeting in. And so when somebody comes into their synagogue uh, and you have a rich person and you have a poor person, don't play favorites. Now, we're going to look at that here in a minute. 
uh, this rich person. What's interesting is the fact that we really don't get any understanding that this person is, i.e., rich, until down in uh, verse number 5. When, when James is actually talking about this person that enters into the synagogue at this point in verse number 2, he doesn't say that he's rich. He's using adjectives. He's using descriptive terms. He's revealing the fact that he comes in, what does it say? With a gold ring and a goodly apparel. Basically, Arnold Frutenbaum points out the fact that this term, uh, gold ring, it actually means in the original language, gold-fingered. And basically what he argues is the fact that the rich people back in that day, they wouldn't just have like one ring. They would have a finger with multiple rings or multiple rings on their fingers. This would be a very gaudy aspect, showmanship aspect. And when it mentions that he comes in with goodly apparel, it's not that the guy comes in with a suit and tie buttoned up with a three-piece suit, but the goodly aspect reveals an aspect of radiance or brilliance or color. That's why we get this image, if you will, of this is going to be a picture of the rich man and Lazarus. All right, so you have the rich man coming in, and then you'll see a Lazarus here in a minute uh, begging at the temple. And so you got to put yourself in their shoes. They're, they fled persecution. They're still being persecuted. And now James is telling them, you cannot play favorites with your faith. And then he uses this illustration. If a rich person comes in, he has gold rings on, he has goodly apparel, and then you have this poor person come in. And so what happens is these Christians at that time, apparently, because if not, James wouldn't be writing this, but apparently at that time, these Christians were saying, okay, to the rich person, okay, I'm going to get you the best seat in the house right here. Okay, for the poor person, hey, you can sit here by my footstool. So they would have a little, as you would imagine, a little stool, if you will. And you can sit on the floor there, or you go stand in the corner. Just be glad you're here, right? But the rich person, oh, we're going to take care of you. We're going to give you the best seat in the house. This is what was happening at that day. Otherwise, again, why is James writing these letters? And so we get this aspect that they're playing favorites on who's coming in to their synagogue and in their assembly. If there's one place that really should be available for freedom, available for people to just love on folks, it's the church. I mean, you're not going to get the love, un, unadulterated love in the world. You're, the church is where love has to emanate and radiate through. And too many times, thankfully not here at Open Door, but too many times people will come into a church and they feel outed. They feel outcast. They feel like they don't fit in. No one ever talks to them. And so they feel like they have no place. And especially if somebody comes in and they're not wearing the right clothes. Right? Too many times within the Christian church, again, thankfully it's not Open Door, but in many Christian churches, if you're not wearing the right clothes, you're not getting the best seat. If you wear the right clothes and you speak the right Christianese, guess what? We'll talk to you. We'll take care of you. Things like that. But that shouldn't be the church. The church should be somewhere that everybody has access to, not only the faith of God, the word of God, but also the exhibition of the love of God. It shouldn't be this caste system to where you have the lower workers on the bottom, then you get the middle class, and then you get the rich elite, then you get the authority ruling heads. That's not what the church is about. It's amazing because when you start looking into the top reasons why people seek counseling, when they seek psychological help or psychiatry, 
I just did a quick search on four different locations. And on all of them, on their top five reasons, either number one or number two was the fact that the people are trying to get counseled because they feel different. They don't have any self-esteem. They experience bouts of loneliness or they're fearful, worry, and anxiety, have anxiety. What better place to help remove these feelings than the church? And so you can imagine as far as these Christians back then, having this rich person come in and a poor person, that poor person, according to society in the first century Jewish area, they already look at them as poor and they consider them not be receiving the blessings of God because they still have the Mosaic law in their mind and they're probably still thinking, okay, if you're going to obey God and do well, you're going to be blessed. And so the fact that you're poor, you're probably incurring some sort of wrath, judgment, or curse from God. But that's not what's happening this would probably be equivalent to like if Elon Musk came in along with a homeless person right after him. Honestly, who would you treat better? Who would you go up and say hi to first? Who could probably benefit you more if both of these individuals walked through our door right now? This is probably a modern day example of what was going on back then. So let me ask this question. Open it up. Just some quick thoughts. Why do you believe these Christians possibly paid more attention to the rich that were coming into their synagogue and just telling the poor, oh, just be lucky to be here? Why do you think that is? Thoughts? Money? Why? Why would that, why would that help? Bigger building, more people. Okay. Huh? expenses, okay, to help offset costs, try to build on an, a, an extension of their synagogue, whatever the case is, you know, money. Uh, you know, too many times we look at the blessings that God gives us through people as coming from the pe- person themselves and not as people being used of God. So too many times, m- myself included, we'll see somebody meet, meet a prayer request of mine, and I give more appreciation to the person than I do of God. You know, now there's an aspect of appreciation that person who's felt compelled and led to give or to help, by all means, definitely. But we got to remember that every good and perfect gift is from the Father above, with whom there is no variableness. And so, but too many times we think, okay, the rich person that's coming into the synagogue, oh, they can take, oh man, we we got AC unit that we need to replace, forty, fifty thousand dollars We got a lot of stuff, changing out the carpet, you know. It is very difficult, to be honest, in the human flesh, if, if you're one of the few people that know the financial wherewithal of certain people and know where sometimes when large amounts of giving come from, in a human fleshly perspective, it is very difficult not to treat them differently. But you can't treat them differently because... Number one, all that money, all the blessings, first and foremost, is coming from God. But number two, like James is saying right here, and what we're going to talk about is we're being judges of uh, evil thoughts by making these judgments with them and playing favorites. And so it also, it doesn't, that person that wants to give financially and bless people, whether it's materially or meet a need, whatever the case is, what I found out more often than not, they're wanting to stay anonymous, you know, 
and they don't want to do it for any accolades, but they want to do it because they felt led and impelled to give. And so they don't want any, you know, kudos, if you will. But I will be honest, it is difficult when you do see and hear and understand where, okay, someone just gave fifty, sixty thousand dollars $60,000 to the church. Hmm, okay. To not treat them differently. Because there's no difference between that person that gave that much money and the person that gives $100. There's no difference in that. And so, but that's a trap that Satan wants to go ahead and use to go ahead and cause division in the church, things like that. We got to remember in James chapter 1, verse number 3, like you guys have po- pointed out, why these Christians possibly paid more attention to the rich. In verse number 13, it says, Let no man uh, say when he is tempted, I'm tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. When we talked about situational ethics in the past, this church probably had some bills, if you, if, if you know what I mean, that needed to be paid. Maybe they were trying to rebuild, and they're like, okay, rich person, if we take care of this person, maybe they'll give to God's kingdom, or in other words, give to our church, and then we can do more than what we're wanting to do. And so that's part of the trap that James talks about here in chapter 1, verse number 13, that temptation, that evil inclination, that desire situationally to commit a sin just so you can try to better your situation out. James is saying, no, you should not, cannot do that. Plus, like we already mentioned before, is the fact that we look at a rich person, we're thinking, okay, they can bless us, but really in in totality, if God wants to bless this church, God's going to bless this church. I've been here not as long as, you know, some of you guys, but I've been here, you know, we've been here almost a decade, you know, totally. And uh, we've seen God provide substantially and sometimes seeing it through people we never would have even thought of it coming from. And it's amazing that we can never take our eyes off the fact that when God does desire to bless this church financially, God's blessing the church. It's not the person. It's coming from God. God's giving the desire. God's giving the impulse. He's giving the leading, and that person is following. And like Jesus said, if you go ahead and you shout your uh, proclamations in public on what you did, you've had your reward there. But many times I found the people that give very much sacrificially like that, they don't. They want to stay anonymous. And Jesus says, if that's you, if you're giving like that or you're committing and you're blessing like that and you want to stay anonymous, Jesus promises you will have your reward in heaven. There's no greater place to have that reward rather than here or in heaven. We'd want to have it in heaven. And so we got to get out of this mindset that all the blessings we get from people aren't from people. They're from God. People are just the vessels. And I'm thankful for every single person who God used in our life to bless us. But we got to remember that ultimately all of it comes from God. In the moment we take our eye off God's providence, we place it on man's providence, that's when this happens and we start to play favorites with the rich. Okay? Uh, moving on. In verse number 5, James writes this. Talking about the rich, he says, uh, Hearken, so listen, my beloved brethren... There's that term. Hath not God chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith, and heirs of the kingdom which he hath promised to them that love them? And so here James is telling them, listen up, beloved brethren. Just a verse, a couple verses before, he said, my brethren, 
have not the faith of Jesus Christ. Now he's about to go, he's asking them a rhetorical question. And now he says, my beloved brethren. So he's going to come at them with some hard truth, but he wants to go ahead and make sure that they understand the love he has for them as well. You know, part of that adage is true where it says people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. I believe that's generally true. You know, if you want to go ahead and and help somebody overcome a sin in somebody's life that they may be oblivious to, you have got to have the real estate with that person relationally to be able to say, hey, I see what you're doing and I love you too much not to tell you. If you don't have a relationship with that person, chances are they're not going to receive it well. But if you have that relationship, you can go ahead and help encourage them and equip them and allow them to gain victory through Jesus. So that's what I love when he says, hearken my beloved brethren. He wants them to know that he loves them. And then he asks that rhetorical question, has not God chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith? Uh, first thing I want to point out is the fact of, has God not chosen? Now, a couple of things I want to unpack here real quick. Does it mean that God chose the poor to be rich in faith? Did God in eternity past make a predetermination that those who were financially poor would automatically have abundant faith? Is this what James is saying? That's not what he's saying right here. And so what we got to understand when he's saying, has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith? I really believe he's talking about God's view versus the world's view. Whereas we read, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, I believe it is, where God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And so God's ways are totally different from ours. And then the aspect of choosing the poor to be rich in in faith, we're going to look at a couple things. First, this word chosen. There's a lot of times when we see this word chosen or God chose uh, it comes from the, a Greek word that means elect, election. We see election in Ephesians chapter 1. We have to understand, whenever we see choose, chosen, or elected, it's always to a position, it's to a service, or it's to a blessing. It is never God choosing somebody to everlasting life, ever. You will not find that in Scripture. If you study all the words where... Uh, uh, Ek lego, I believe it is, and uh, kaleo, ek kaleo, something like that, you will find out the fact that this is always to a position, a service, or a blessing. That's it. We have to remember, Jesus mentioned that, have I not chosen you 12? Yeah, one of you is the devil. And so that's one clear example that the apostles were chosen not for salvation. They were chosen to the office of an apostleship. And yes, Judas Iscariot was chosen to that office. Judas Iscariot, I do not believe, is saved. Judas Iscariot was not chosen to receive everlasting life. Judas was chosen to fulfill a particular office. And if you really want to go on a tangent, we can see in the Old Testament that he is the son of perdition. That was foretold to go ahead and sell Jesus Christ for the price of a slave. And that it was already prophesied, you can read in Acts chapter 1, where the reason why they had to choose Matthias or Justice to take his place was because the Old Testament said that son of perdition let somebody else take his bishopric, take his position, because he was chosen to a position. So the first thing we just got to understand scripture-wise, when you see chosen or elect, it's to a position, service, or blessing, not to everlasting life. What is this spiritual blessing? 
Well, we're told here that God has chosen that the poor would be what? Rich in faith. Uh, Dr. David Anderson points out, who is it in the times of trial and persecution that tend to exhibit more faith, the rich or the poor? And more often than not, it's those that are more impoverished, more that they don't have the material possessions, the wealth, the affluence, that are much more reliant upon God and asking God, give us this day our daily bread, like Pastor Ken mentioned this morning, and I know other of y'all's stories as well. It's those that have nothing that are really relying on the power and the providence of God. It's not saying the rich can't do it. It's just saying that many times the rich fall into the snare of doing just what uh, God warned the Israelites would do when they get into the promised land. Be careful because when you get into here at the land flowing with milk and honey to say, oh, look at what I got with my hands. That was a caution that God had said to the Israelites and we see that had happened. And so with the rich, and you can argue who's rich here in America, you know, versus third world countries, stuff like that. But with the rich, there's oftentimes uh, that subtle temptation to look at what we have from what we did, what we did, as opposed to what we have from the blessings of God. And so there's a spiritual blessing that's pronounced that says those that are poor tend to be more rich in faith. They have much more abundance of faith. They have much more of a close relationship, a stronger desire, a stronger dependence upon God than those that are very often well well taken care of, if, if you will, materially, financially, stuff like that. And so we can see this in Scripture. We can see this in the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter uh, 5, I believe it is, and Luke chapter 6. Blessed are the poor, for theirs is what? The kingdom of God. And so there's a uh, blessing uh, for those that are poor. So again, contrary to the world's way, where the world will look at somebody that's rich and prosperous as well off, God's way is no. There's too many times, and James just talked about this. James just talked about pure religion and undefiled. It doesn't matter what somebody looks like on the outside. It matters what they look like on the inside. And we see that uh, with James's references in the end of chapter 1, as well as a lot of the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders of the days, the Annas and the Caiaphases, and those others that had all the looks and the appearance of religiosity and yet they were very far from it. What were they? They were a washed tombs uh, full of dead man bones is what was said. And so whereas the world sees affluence as, as a, uh, uh, people that are prosperous, God says, no, 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 no. More often than not, it's the rich that are less in faith in the poor that are more because they see where their dependence is coming from. Again, this is not an absolute. This is a generalization. It doesn't mean the rich can't have a strong faith because we know that is the case. God has blessed this church with a lot of rich people that is really taking care of us, and, and uh, so we appreciate that as well. So not only that, he says that God has chosen the poor to be rich in faith, but he also says, and also to be heirs of the kingdom. Heirs of the kingdom and to those that uh, love him. So this is another aspect we gotta, we got to really consider. In Scripture, you're going to read in the New Testament people that can inherit the kingdom and people that can enter the kingdom. So there's a difference. I would argue there's a clear and distinct difference, and I'm going to make my case and argument right here. 
To enter the kingdom simply means that you have access. You can enter into the kingdom of God or the messianic kingdom. Uh, This entrance is based upon faith alone, which trusting in Jesus Christ's sacrifice on the cross for our sins, and then we get regenerated, we receive the Holy Spirit, we can enter into the kingdom of God. We see that in John chapter 3, verse number 5. Except the man be born of water and of spirit, he cannot enter in the kingdom of God. Now, there's not a whole lot of verses that really mention entering the kingdom of God. There is a few. More often than not, what we'll read in the New Testament is inheriting the kingdom of God. And when we look at the aspect of inheriting, inheriting or inheritance reveals an aspect of authority. While entering reveals access, inheritance reveals authority. And you can look at this in the Old Testament and the Jewish concept of uh, the birthright and the inheritance of the firstborn. Typically, it's the firstborn or the eldest. There are times in Scripture where it wasn't the firstborn that received the inheritance, uh, but the firstborn typically received a double portion, and then the other sons received a portion as well. But the difference is to inherit something is based upon works, is based upon rewards, or not inheriting something is based upon works as well. And so when we're looking at the difference between entering and inheriting, we have got to realize that they're distinct from one another. And like Paul says here in Galatians chapter 5, he says here in verse 19 through 21, the works of the flesh are this. And he lists off some negative characteristics, fornication, adultery, lust, endings, murderings. And he says, of the which I tell you before, as I have also told you in time past, that they which do those things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. And so if we were to take this understanding, if we were to think inheriting the kingdom meant to be a Christian and being able to go to heaven, then we would have to argue that we have to work to make sure we go to heaven because Paul says right here, those which do these things will not inherit the kingdom. And so he's saying if you are envious, if you're murdering and commit murder in your heart or adulterous, things like that, then Paul is saying you're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. If we think that's equivalent to being saved, we've just added works to our salvation. That would mean that we have to make sure we don't do any of these things so that we can get into the kingdom of God. And that's not what he's saying. He's saying with inheritance, there's an aspect of the judgment seat of Christ, the Bema seat judgment, where all Christians will stand before Jesus Christ and we will give an account for our Christian service how we've served him since we've become a Christian, why we have served him. Was it born of the right motivation of the heart and spirit led? And Jesus promises rewards to those that faithfully serve him. Some of these rewards are ruling. In the parable of the talents, you get these people that receive this amount of money. One of them buries it and gets no interest on it. One gets a little bit of interest, the other gets a lot. And Jesus says in that parable, you that went ahead and got a lot of interest and you did a lot with it, you're going to be in charge of ten cities. You that just did a little bit, you're going to be in charge of a few cities. You that just buried it and got nothing, you're not going to get that reward. It's an aspect of reward and rulership in the messianic kingdom. 
when I did for C4C a couple interviews, the one I had talked about before with Hudson Smelly, and then the one with Dr. Andy Woods, who is a pastor of Sugarland Bible Church out in Texas, uh, they both spoke about the Messianic Kingdom. The Messianic Kingdom, and I really, after talking with Mike the other day or this morning, I think, I really think I want to do a full study class, maybe a two-month, three-month study on the Messianic Kingdom. There's so many facets of it. And one of the facets is this aspect of rewards and the ability to rule and reign with Christ. And that comes through inheritance. In other words, I want to illustrate it like this. This is a picture of my house. This is not my truck. This was before we bought the house. But for a way of purposes, this is a picture of our house. Anybody that me and my wife knows, we enjoy fellowship, friends, family, whatever the case is, Y'all come to our house anytime. Y'all come to our living room. Y'all go watch stuff on TV with us. Y'all can check out our awesome fish tanks. Y'all can come over and have a meal, right? Sit down. We can you go out back in the fire pit and we can make s'mores. Alyssa would love that. Uh, you could use the restroom if you need to use the restroom. You could enter my house and you have access to anything that me or Rebecca gives you access to, period. Okay, so you have the ability to enter into our house and to enjoy all the blessings that come with our house under the authority of me and Rebecca because we own the house. Now, if Rebecca and I die and you guys are really faithful to us, we really believe you have your, our, our best interest in mind and that we really think that the best stewardship of our house is to give it to you when we die, guess what? you would inherit our house. No longer do you only have access to go in. Now you have ruling authority of my house. Now you can go into our old bedrooms. Now you can use the master bathroom and all these other things. You can decide who goes in the house and who doesn't and what they can do because you inherited it. You are now a ruling authority of our house. Now our house isn't that great. I love our house, but uh, it's kind of small. But that's a clear picture of the difference between entering and inheriting. In entering the kingdom, we have access to go into the Messianic kingdom as Christians. All Christians have the ability to go into the kingdom and enjoy all the blessings of it. But there are some Christians, because of faithful service, will be rewarded to inherit the kingdom and in the similar way have an aspect of an ability to rule and have authority in that time period as well. And so when we're looking at entering and inheriting, there is a distinction in what James is saying here. Again, flipping the script to what the world thinks, the rich is the best. He says, no, 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 most often than not, it's the poor that have the abundant faith. And God has chosen the poor that would inherit the kingdom because of the faith they have and the service they have and the dependence on God they have. It's a blessing that God pronounces generally for those that live that life. And like he says here in chapter 2 at the end, he says it's not just to the poor, but also to them that love him. So it's not just for poor people, it's for those that love Christ and faithfully serve Christ. Big difference between entering the kingdom and inheriting. And I can go on longer and longer, but I don't have the time. Six and seven. James goes on and, and says, okay, God is, you know, rhetorical question. God has chosen the poor of the world to be rich in faith. And he says in verse six, but you have despised the poor. They want the world system instead of God's way. 
they despise the poor shown by their actions by having the poor stand in the corner or sitting by the footstool. And he says, you despise the poor. Do not the rich man oppress you and draw you before the judgment seats? Do they not blaspheme the name by the worthy name by which you are called? James is revealing the fact that to these Jewish Christians, that's a present reality. It's not a past experience that, hey, remember when the rich did this? That's not what he's saying here in verse 6. He says, do not rich men oppress you. Do not these types of people typically oppress you, drag you to court, blaspheme. And you care so much more about catering to these people than you do to these people. Now, James isn't saying don't take care of the rich and don't take care of the poor. James is using generalities right now that's saying you care too much about uh, showing favorites to the, poor, to the rich because of how you think they'll be able to bless you and benefit you, forgetting that everything comes from my hands, not theirs, and you're neglecting the poor who God has a special attention uh, to. And he's reminding them, more often than not, it's these rich people that are dragging you to court. And so we got to realize that with James and these people, this is a present reality. This isn't something they're just thinking about in the past. It's still happening to them. And yet they're still falling to the trap of trying to look at somebody's wealth to see how that person can help them as opposed to going to God and saying, God, help me. They're going to the Elon Musk saying, Elon, help me, instead of going to God. God's saying, no, you should not be doing this. And again, what's fascinating is the fact that he calls them beloved brethren, revealing the fact that, yes, Christians can live like this. And Christians will receive judgment for that as well. Finishing up, in 8 through 13, James says, If you fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, thou shalt love thy neighbor as yourself, you do well. But if you have respect to persons, you commit sin, and are convinced of the law as transgressors. For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he's guilty of all. For he that said, do not commit adultery, said also, do not kill. Now if thou commit no adultery, yet if thou kill, thou art become a transgressor of the law. So speak ye and so do, as they that shall be judged by the law of liberty. There it is again. For he shall have judgment without mercy that hath showed no mercy. And mercy rejoiceth against judgment. And so here we get this aspect. James is saying, if you fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, pointing to the Old Testament, you're doing well. He's referring back to the book of Leviticus. Leviticus, I believe it's chapter 19, chapter 16, verse number 18, where we're looking at that aspect of loving your neighbor as yourself. If we remember, Jesus Christ was asked during his earthly ministry by religious leaders of the day, uh, probably trying to trip him up, says, Master, which is the greatest commandment? And Jesus Christ said, what? He said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. You see, Jesus Christ says that if we have proper love towards God and proper love towards our neighbor, we could fulfill the entirety of the Mosaic Law. Because if you were to look at just even the Ten Commandments, the first four Ten Commandments deal with God vertically. The last commandments deal with man horizontally. If we could live 
with a proper love for God and love for neighbor, we would be able to fill all the law and all the prophets. But the problem is, we can't. Hence why the reason Jesus had to come. But when we're looking at James saying, if you fulfill the royal law, I believe he's referring back to this. It's in Leviticus 19, verse number 18, to love your neighbor as yourself. And then recalling how Jesus says to love God and to love others. That if we can do that, while James says we are doing well, and we could fulfill all of that. But James is very quick to remind them, you could keep every single command, but if you offend in one, you're guilty of the whole law. And so here in America, I don't know how many laws there are on the books, but if you keep every single law, but you jaywalk, right? Guess what? You're a lawbreaker, period. It doesn't matter how big of the law or how small of the law it is. If we break one law in America, we're a lawbreaker. And we have to pay a fine, we have to go to jail, go to prison, whatever the case is. It's the same concept with the law, the moral law. And the fact that thou shalt not lie, thou shalt not steal, your Ten Commandments stuff, and then a whole lot more that was given to Israel. That we could try our best to keep every single thing. But if we're guilty of just one, we're guilty of them all. And James is trying to tie all this together. I believe James is trying to tie all this together to tell them, okay, you guys may be doing well at doing these things. But by showing, playing favorites and showing partiality, trying to appease the rich and ignoring and really despising the poor, there is no way you are loving your neighbor as yourself. And you're still guilty of breaking the law. Now that begs the question, did Jesus Christ not pay for our sins past, present, and future? Yes, he did. And no, he didn't. He did positionally. Positionally, when Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins and mine, he knew every single sin you and I would do. From this day forward, from this day back, he knew everything. And so Jesus Christ's blood was sufficient to pay for every single sin that you and I will ever do. And we receive Christ positionally, we have been forgiven of all those sins. However, when we go through life as a Christian, like these Jewish Christians are, they're playing favorites, partiality. They're breaking the law, right? They're not loving their neighbor as themselves. Guess what? Practically, they need forgiveness. That's what John says in 1 John chapter 1, verse number 9. For if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to cleanse us from our sins. For fellowship purposes, we have got to go ahead and say, God, I've wronged you. I did something I shouldn't have done. I please forgive me. So in one sense, positionally, yes, God did pay past, present, and future of all your sins positionally to be in Christ, to be a child of God. But practically, when we go ahead and we get sin on us, we stain ourselves from breaking even the smallest law of God, we have got to go to God and ask for forgiveness. And God is in the aspect of granting mercy. And that's why he says here at the end of uh, verse 13, for he will have judgment without mercy that showeth no mercy, and mercy rejoices against judgment. God wants to grant mercy. God wants to grant pardon. But God can't grant something that's not been asked. It's like Pastor Ken said this morning, you know, and we're going to get to James chapter 4. You have not because you ask not. Well, God could look through the corridors of time, being omniscient, and give us what we, he knows we need, even without us asking but how many blessings may we be missing out on because we're not 
asking. And one of the greatest blessings we could ever receive is practical forgiveness from God in our walk as a Christian. Because we have got to go to God and say, God, I've, I've offended you, I've done wrong, please forgive me. And start healing that relationship back with God. But we read in Scripture too, and, and we talked about this a few weeks back, when people were making sacrifices in the temple, they, they, they said, before you bring your temple sacrifice, if you have offended a brother, you have got to make it right first. You have got to get forgiveness from your, your brother before you bring this sacrifice to the altar. And we see this also in the earlier uh, New Testament letters in the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ, that if we're not going to give forgiveness to other people, then why would God give forgiveness to us? So the first thing these Jewish Christians are supposed to do with this aspect of partiality is to go to God first and foremost and say, God, forgive us. We're looking at this rich person like, number one, they're the ones blessing us. Number two, they're the one taking care of us and we're despising the poor. Forgive us for that. Cleanse our hearts and give us a, a clearer mind and restore that relationship and that fellowship. We've got to remember, sometimes the, the bad stuff in our life is self-inflicted because of judgment we're bringing on ourselves. And so if we want God's forgiveness in our life, we've got to, number one, ask it. Number two, we've got to go ahead and forgive those that have, forget, that have wronged us as well. And so with this section here, with playing favorites, just a couple key things. Number one, we've got to fight the temptation of seeing blessings coming from man rather than from God. And I think this is one of the biggest things that James is getting across in this section. Uh, number two, all Christians are going to have the ability to access the kingdom to enter, but only faithful Christians will have the ability to inherit the kingdom and have ruling authority on a basis of rewards that Jesus Christ blesses. And then finally, there's no room within Christianity for a caste system. We are all sinners, and as Christians, we are all sinners saved by grace. And so there's not one person that's better than another. It's not the rich over the poor. It's not the poor over the rich. All James is trying to pull out is, generally speaking, those that are more poor are more dependent and reliant upon God. And it's harder for the rich to do so because a lot of times that temptation comes from trusting in our wealth and our hands as opposed to God. So with this section, realize there's no room for the caste system here in Christianity. That rich, poor... God loves every single one of us, and there's a purpose and a place for all of us. The greatest sacrificial giving in the entirety of the New Testament, I would argue, is the widow with the two mites. Why? Probably because even though it was just two mites compared to everybody else, if you look at it percentage-wise, she outgave all of them. And it was probably one of the poorest people that society outcast because what? She was a widow as well. And so someone that society looked down upon, they didn't take care of. She gave one of the greatest sacrificial givings to God. There is no room for the caste system. So I'm thankful to be a part of a church that no matter who walks through our doors, we love every single person. It doesn't matter what, what clothes they're wearing, you know, or how they talk. We just love them as they are. And then we just allow Jesus Christ to clean people up just like he's still trying to clean me up as well. Amen. 
Amen. And so that's this section. Uh, like I said, I'm going to be praying about uh, verses 14 through 26 because I really want to spend a good amount of time doing that uh, back to back and not have breaks because uh, I do want to spend some time on it. I want to do that passage justice because when you get to the verses, faith without works is dead. What is a prophet? Though a man say he have faith and have not works, can faith save him? There's a lot to unpack and I want to go ahead and articulate clearly and very extensively how the Lordship Calvinist view is totally incorrect and incoherent with what James has already been talking about in the letter of James. And so as election day is coming up, and I know that there's a lot of us that uh, we don't agree, not within the church per se, but politically, even within big church, Christianity as a whole, red, blue, independent, libertarian, views on different amendments and bills, blah, 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 blah. We've got to remember we're Christian first. We're Christian first. I argue, and I might do a little something on this, I'm not a constitutional Christian. I, lo- I love the Constitution. I signed up to serve 20 years to die and defend the Constitution. I'm a Christian first. I would argue that I'm a Christian constitutionalist. And so regardless of what happens Tuesday, if it goes your way or not, my way or not, we have got to remember we are Christians first. And no matter how much we disagree with somebody on the other political views, they are somebody Jesus Christ died for. And if they walk through our doors Sunday morning and you knew how they voted, would you play favorites? Would you treat them differently? And that's where I got trying to get across. There is no room for the caste system within the church. We have got to love each other. And then from there, help try to correct people's thinking through accurately dividing the word of truth and allowing the Holy Spirit to convict, challenge, and change people. So regardless of what happens Tuesday, let's stay Christian. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this evening and again for scripture. Lord, forgive us when we do commit uh, even a small sin, small sin maybe in our eyes, but a big sin obviously to you. And uh, Lord, please forgive us when we fail you. Uh, Give us clarity uh, to know when we've done wrong. And Lord, we thank you for your forgiveness and your mercy. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.